Yo, what's good, y'all? My name is Chris Shreve, a.k.a. C. Shreve, the professor. Welcome to another episode of Who Needs a Classroom podcast. Today's focus will once again be on biostatistics. Today's topics will be populations and samples. So this was kind of the first meat and potatoes chapter uh, in the course that I used to teach on campus and online, I guess, too. I, I think I taught an online variation as well as we were putting things online in preparation for crazy times like we're in right now. So what's a population? So a population could be all of the U.S. or all of North Carolina, or it could be something a little more honed in like incoming freshmen at your university or new employees or you know those 65 and older or those 25 and under, et cetera. So your population is basically the set or you know, group of people having some kind of observable characteristic that you can measure, you know, like height, like weight, like blood pressure, income, et cetera. So what's a sample? A sample is a subset of that population. Now in hip hop sample might be, you know, I guess the population might be a record and then you take a sample of the record, but different discussion. So a sample that we're talking about is again, a subset of that population. So if we're talking about incoming freshmen, how can we, instead of talking to all 3,000 or however many are coming into you, to your university, how can we talk to 300 of them or 1,000 or 100 or whatever number we decide and make appropriate kind of uh, you know, statements and characteristics, describe this, this group from a smaller amount of them, from a subset of them. So that's really the challenge we have in statistics and in biostatistics is how do we select a sample that truly represents the population? And it's harder than you might think. So that's kind of the, the, the challenge here. The textbook that I used to reference in the class that I taught, and I didn't follow it closely, but I did reference it because it's useful to have a body of work to, to kind of have as common ground, talked about this kind of classic uh, kind of example of having a large sample size, but one that was not effectively selected. And it's this 1936 Literary Digest poll that was trying to predict the outcome of the election. And they falsely predicted it, but they sent out like 10 million some uh, sample, you know, that was their sample size, but it's 10 million some surveys or questionnaires, et cetera. And they got back 2.3 million. So huge return. But the way they selected it was just not really a solid way of representing the population. So they completely had a false prediction. They, they predicted a landslide victory one way and then it goes the other way to FDR. And it's because they selected their folks from phone registries and automobile register, registries. And so that was representative of folks of higher means and wealth. And FDR had in his numbers a large, you know, just expanse of the population from, you know, those who weren't represented there. And so that shows how if your numbers are biased, if you kind of misrepresent your population, even if you get a huge sample size, it's just kind of going to be hugely wrong. So that's a classic example in, in kind of poor sampling. I'm realizing as I'm talking about this, I keep saying sampling, and I've, I've kind of embraced being a producer in these, these COVID months, and sampling is, is, is really kind of the same thing there. When you think about it from that perspective, again, this is kind of an aside because it's music more than biostats, but 
the sample should be representative of the full song. Like if you're going to pepper in a sample, how do you find the break or the little, the little snippet that really can like take people back to the essence of that whole song or that whole feeling? And it's really kind of the same idea here is that subset of the whole song. How do you find that little three second snippet that will take them back there? So that's an aside. But anyways, let's go back to the biostats perspective. So in the challenge of sampling uh, from a biostats perspective, again, how do you sample? Now I take a big, long, huge sample. Um, or <laughs> Again, I'm kind of mixing metaphors here um, because music is my thing more than biostats these days. But anyways, I guess in both cases, how we select our sample is probably more important than how many samples or how long the sample is or in the case of sampling of that you know, election data, how large the sample is, how many people you talk to. If you don't select them well, they just represent one or two or three perspectives, but there's a whole bunch of other perspectives that are not being touched. So if you fail to represent those perspectives, oftentimes your results will be invalid. They will not be, you know, what you're, if you're trying to say a prediction about this is this and it's invalid, your predictions are off. So we don't want that in statistics. We want valid statements. So a kind of gold standard for what sampling would be in, you know, again, this biostats perspective is random sampling. And the idea there is that every subject in the population has an equal chance of being selected. Now, this is easier said than done because quickly you realize it has, it has to do with response rate. If I take a whole population, say, again, I used to teach this at the university, so I would oftentimes reference their kind of student examples. But I would say, let's say we took all of the kids here at the university with banner IDs, um, that type of thing, and then just use those numbers. It'd be the same as like a social security number list. Take a bunch of people we have, I have already have with a data number and then you know, put, put them kind of name in a hat, number in a hat, or sorry, like, you know, kind of uh, like lotto style, but like names in a hat, like everybody has equal chance of being selected. Well, you can do that, but then you realize quickly, do they choose to respond to your survey or sign up for your study? So response rate quickly becomes a problem because if you have a 50% response rate or a 60%, a 30%, whatever it is, does that group now represent the population? Or is there something inherently different about those who chose to sign up or to respond? And oftentimes there is something different about that you know, that requested group and the group that actually responds. So the classic pitfall of this random selection process is that you need a high response rate to accomplish, you know, what you were attempting to select. Um, the advantage of it, of course, is that it's impossible to truly, you know, talk to everybody. That's why like a census comes out once every 10 years. It's hard to talk to everybody. So in the sake of, you know, time and money, a random sample is what we try to accomplish. Now, as I've said, it's not easy to do that. So instead of, you know, just trying to do this random numbers and then we have this response rate issue, we've tried other things that might be a workaround, right? So a convenience sample, what's going on there? So it's, as it sounds, convenient. You could literally go to convenience stores, <laughs> go to gas stations, go to you know, supermarkets, go to places where people are and you could get some numbers. You could definitely, you know, survey 200 people, 400 people, 500 people quickly by standing outside of a school when it lets out or by stand, you know, you can find a way to get numbers quickly. Again, does your sample now represent the population? That's the real challenge. If it doesn't, like if, let's say, you know, you only go to 
grocery stores. What about people who don't go to those grocery stores or who go to only convenience stores or small, you know, in food, food desert type folks? You're not talking to folks who don't go to, who don't end up at those grocery stores. Or, you know, if you only survey college students, that's a classic one. That's not representative of the population. They're really young. They inherently have some differences in certain groups and themselves in terms of perspective. And so convenience samples oftentimes can supply you with numbers quickly, but does it represent your population? Now, sometimes you can almost fast track it. Maybe you, you figured it out. Okay, we're trying to figure out, you know, we want to survey the, the student population. I used to always talk to these are college kids, so let's say I'm talking to that class. I would say, okay, we want to survey what, you know, artists, let's pretend it's pre-COVID, what artists do these students want to see uh, at this, you know, fall lineup? And so they, they go to a place where, like you know, a spring show, one time they had Little Wayne here in Boone at App State. And so let's say you go to the Boone show and you survey, you know, 400 people who came out of that show, who would you like to see in the fall? <clears throat> and you'd probably, probably get some pretty good information there, right? It was highly convenient because those are the folks who would be there. But again, <laughs> They might show up in the fall, but let's let's ask ourselves for a second who they might be and what blind spots we might have. Maybe we haven't accounted for the fact that there might be a lot of seniors there who might graduate, who might not be there in the fall. You know, maybe the folks who were looking to target in the fall are from a different demographic. Maybe maybe the Lil Wayne show wasn't as effective as we thought, <laughs> and so maybe we need to have the, the up and comer instead of the. I don't know. It's interesting. You, you you try to realize in bias when you're trying with sampling. You want to remove your blind spots. What are you not seeing here? What is, what is making your sample not representative of the larger population? So another way we could do this is a systematic sample. Okay, so this would be basically like every 10th case, 20th case, 50th case, that type of thing. Trying to let numbers kind of be our randomness, right? We're going to sample 100 people out of 1,000. We're going to pick every like 100th person or 50th person or every 25th and like, you know, keep that routine. The problem, you know, that can work sometimes having that system. Sometimes it makes you kind of be, it kind of introduces a certain level of randomness almost, so to speak. But it can also sometimes have a blind spot that you don't see. Let's say you were doing that with classes and you chose, you're in a classroom and every class has like, this classroom has five rows of 15 seats or 10 seats or whatever the number is, but you decide to do, all right, I'm going to pick one person from every row, and without thinking, you choose the, the person on the end of the row, right? So that's not a big deal, but maybe the acoustics in the, in the, in the classroom on the left side or the right side are different, or maybe, maybe the people on the end of the row feel more... I don't know. Sometimes the if you realize it, like that, one, I guess that's a worse example than I would tell in class. Like, what if you, what if that equaled, let's say you picked every twelfth class or every twelfth uh, dorm room, and that that puts you on a certain side of the dorm, and maybe one side of the dorm had a totally different noise level than the other side. Maybe one side of the dorm faced downtown. So if you only talk to the folks who didn't face downtown. They might think the acoustics were great and there was no noise, but the folks on the other side of the hall might get like loud noise complaint type noise, but you wouldn't know that because you didn't talk to them because somehow you're every 10th 
like room or every 12th room worked out to where you weren't talking to that side of the hall. Now that's, I know, that's kind of weird, but that happens. So in systematic, you have to watch out for, did you introduce systematic bias, right? If you pick every 10th house on a block, or let's say you go to a block to talk to everybody and you only pick the houses on the end of the block, right? The first house on the street. And like you're only talking the street, like really houses on that like intersect with this one street. So far in the middle of the street, it might be totally different than on the end of the street. Okay, so like assist, you can introduce like you know think systematic racism. Like a system can introduce a problem. So we don't want to introduce like hey every let's do every twentieth person or twentieth room or talk to every twentieth like house on the street and that equals we never talk to people on the other side other end of this avenue, et cetera, that type of thing, um, or on the side of your building. Because, like, you know, it could be very different on one side compared to the other side. Y'all live in America. Y'all are aware of that. Systemic racism is an issue, obviously. So don't introduce a system of data selection that creates a blind spot for you. Okay, another way of sampling that would almost be kind of the, the reverse of that, attempting to kind of not do systemic problems but create almost – you know, let's look out for that problem. So this is called stratified sampling. So we might define some subgroups. So let's say um, the university, this is an example that I had in class, was the university had you know, a much larger body of in-state students compared to out-of-state students. So if I just randomly select from the entire 20,000 students or however many are in the student body, I'm going to get a lot more in-state student feedback, right? Just because the way the numbers work out random-wise. So if I want to really compare and contrast in-state versus out-of-state students' perspectives, then I'm going to need to say, okay, let's take 100 people in-state and 100 people out-of-state and compare them. And so you're kind of taking your population and slicing into two groups. So you have, you know, hopefully a random sample from in-state of 100 people or whatever and another comparable one from out-of-state. And, you know, hopefully you took them randomly within this, this stratified idea. So you're trying to emulate this gold standard of everybody has equal chance. But what you realize quickly in America and in the world is that that's oftentimes more difficult to accomplish than you might realize. So using these methods sometimes is effective, sometimes not. Depends on your stratified, you know, how did you break down the strata? You know, if you're looking freshman, sophomore, junior, seniors, that might be more easily accomplished than you know, looking at different income levels around your city and housing that historically has some difficulty in studying it, you know, in terms of bias, obviously. So I used to show folks in class kind of the power of random numbers. We would do, you know, I think I would early in the class, I used to do just kind of pass around a sign-in sheet. I was kind of, you know, just chill with taking kind of a class attendance thing sometimes. And I would, so early in the semester, I would send around a sheet they would sign in, and then they would write their height in inches, I think, right? And so I have like 31 people or however many, however many people were in the class that semester and have heights for everybody. And so I'd have somebody with a calculator calculate the mean, like the true average of the 31 people. And then we would say, okay, let's use these random numbers. And so we would have a random numbers table. So a random numbers table is kind of this, you know, pre-computers idea. I mean, you basically use a computer to do it, but it's a, a printout of just all random digits, so every digit could have, you know, been a zero through a nine and had equal chance of being that. So if you, once you pick a spot and you work down or up or left or right, you go through random numbers. 
So you don't have to have all 31 heights to predict the average height in class. And so you can usually do it with five or six, something like that. And so it happened several times in class where I would use my five numbers. These, you know, we would use a random number table that was in the back of the book and we'd find our five round numbers and it'd be like, you know, subject or I mean, class, you know, you know, I class number, I'd have them numbered by one through 31. So, you know, student number 23 and then student number six. And again, this is not me saying random because we would talk about <laughs> sometimes students think random is me going 23, six, five, 14, 12. I'm picking numbers right? That's not, the, that's not random. My brain is not the same as the way that true random chance works. So these random numbers tables were really effective as I showed them in predicting what's, you know, what's the actual height of the class on average. And it might not, it might not be exactly on it, but sometimes if it wasn't on it, it was a great learning tool of, hey, why weren't our five numbers representative? And maybe it had one really tall person or a really short person or it's, you know, various type of things you would see. And that kind of gives you a, a discussion point of, okay, how do outliers affect your numbers? We'll talk about those coming up as we talk about kind of the normal curve and distrib distribution and all those things. So um, a lot of my folks in class who didn't like numbers, one of the examples I would always come back to was sports. So if you like sports, you like stats more than you realize. So I would tell them, you know, pick any athlete that you like and figure out their season average, right? Or their, you know, their career average for, you know, could be points per game for basketball or, you know, a quarterback with yards per game, running back, et cetera. But find out, you know, their average, like their season average. Here's how you do it. Do a season average. Um, career could work too, but find a season average. We'll simplify our numbers. So maybe they played 80 games, right? Or maybe they, whatever it was, 16 games. And then figure out what that average number is, right? Tackles per game assists per game, shots per game, whatever it might be. And then can you sample with this random, use this random number idea. You can find random number generators. And so you don't need a full hundred numbers. If you're looking at, you know, random numbers and you have 80 games, you only need number one through 80, right? So if you're using just a computer thing, you might get some numbers outside your range. You can't use game number 91, obviously, but you just go to the, you know, do it again, hit generate again, and you'll get another one. Anyways, can you, you know, check what five games are? Instead of doing 80 games, see if you do a random five games. Does that average compare favorably? Did it predict the student or the student, the season average? And sometimes it does. Oftentimes it does. This is how you know, sampling has power is that instead of having to look at 80 games, I can look at five oftentimes and have a pretty good idea of what you're doing per game, right? Now, again, if one of those games was way outside the range and it's a 60-point game, that might really inflate that five numbers, right? So maybe we find that we better do 10 games to represent it. That's a larger sample size. Um, we'll get into that. But you can do this for yourself. Figure out, you know, if you do, if you run the numbers five, you know, of five games, you know, if you do it enough, does it really, every so often, do you have like an outlier that really misrepresents it? And so if you were, a, you know, this data person at ESPN, maybe you realize, you might want to do seven games or 10 games. or It really kind of helps you frame what's a normal performance. So if you're on ESPN and Steph Curry scores 58, you know that's way out. That's, out, that's a good couple standard deviations away from his normal. We'll talk about that term more. But, like, you know this is a really high-level performance for him, you know? Or vice versa, when somebody doesn't perform well, they'll say, oh, man, he didn't, he didn't do well at all. And so you're looking at what is his normal and how far did he fall short of that. 
right? And so that's related to kind of the distribution of, of numbers. And so this is where random numbers are very helpful. Can you, you know, if you have 80 games, if you pick a random five games, does that number represent your performance? Oftentimes it will. Oftentimes it will. So this, this idea of randomization has power when you look at, you know, we can't study the whole population for a vaccine. So can we take a thousand people that represent the adult population well, study them and make a prediction about the larger population? So this really has a lot of power and is a kind of a key component of research and of science is can we properly select a group that then we can learn from and then make predictions about their larger population. So if that's adolescents and how they, you know, from 15 to 18, here's a statement we can make about them regarding drug use, addiction, depression, um, you know, positive wellness recommendations, whatever it might be. We want to learn about that population. Is our data accurate? Because if it's not, then all of our conclusions are going to be false. They're going to be invalid. So we have to find a way to sample correctly before we even analyze the data we have, right? So um, I think I got to most of it today. Uh, it's funny, as I was going through and talking about sampling, I've been making beats a lot lately, and so I've been doing sampling. So <laughs> to even reference that in the terms of the academia, of me talking about numbers and biostats is, is funny because I keep saying sampling, sampling, <coughs> and I'm, I'm sampling jazz records, et cetera, and it's kind of very different, but kind of the same. You know, does the sample represent does this little snippet, this little 10-second thing I chopped up represent the feeling of that full piece? I mean, and sometimes that's, that's not what I'm trying to do, but sometimes it is. So that, that's a wild thing to connect music and statistics. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll talk more about these concepts uh, as I move through some of the biostat stuff. But uh, the ideas of sampling from your population, how does your sample represent or maybe not represent in the case of when you let bias or... You know, you just didn't see something. You didn't realize, oh, man, we only talk to folks who come to the grocery store in the evenings. You don't even get the morning perspective. Sometimes a store does something like that. They only survey, for whatever reason, the afternoon, you know, staff or the customers, et cetera. And the morning customers might be very different or have a very different perspective that's useful. So customer relations learn this sometimes the hard way. But you have to if you're going to get information from folks, it has to represent the population you're trying to gather information about. So that's a key thing in any form of statistics. Does your sample represent the population you are looking at? So uh, we'll be back uh, with some more biostatistics uh, information and, and more of plenty of other you know, nonsense that I'll talk about. But um, there's more biostats episodes to come and various other ones as well. So hope you all are well. Hope you are um, taking care of yourselves. If you can get the shot, get your shot. I have one more shot to get. I think in like two weeks I have uh, my second shot. So, you know, get your vaccine. The, the more of us that can get it, the more protected our entire society is. So uh, please do that. When we're looking in public health, which is what my, my perspective here is academically, uh, you know, the public is the population. Right. So the more that we can enlarge and enlarge and what kind of word is that? Uh, the more that we can, you know, create a larger and larger body of humans who are vaccinated, the better chance we have of the entire population being able to move forward from this. Right. That whole idea of herd immunity. Well, be part of the, the herd in this case. The science 
is, is pretty strong here, right? I'm, I'm a big guy on science. And so I was worried about fast tracking, you know, the number, fast tracking, you know, literally your sample, your T tests, your experimental groups, because, you know, time was of the essence. I was, I was worried about rushing things. But the cool thing we have with this vaccine is magnitude. 130 million some people I don't know how many people are vaccinated now but when you have that large of a group that's essentially a study group we get to see how many folks have you know negative reactions how many folks don't what's this you know kind of survival rate what's the protection happening here and it's looking great so go do that all right my wife uh, who I'm gonna bring on the show one of these days to talk about what it's like to be on the front lines of this she was in group one she was jumping to get the vaccine. And the numbers were already there. The group's already gone through before. You know, I didn't want to be in the, like the, the guinea pig first, very, very first group, but she's a frontline worker. So she kind of, once they had the vaccine kind of up and ready, that that was the, you know, they want to get those, that group one taken care of because she's out there, you know, really in harm's way. So we'll talk to her about that at some point. But I've kind of been on board because the numbers were there even with her. And she was a little earlier in the curve than I wanted to be, but. She's also not a librarian. She's a nurse practitioner, so she's out there seeing patients every day, lots of patients. So it's one of those things where she needed it. She needed the bulletproof vest out there. She needed to put something off for protection, and I wasn't out there. I was at home keeping my son you know, in this bubble, and so I can have one decision for me and then realize she has a different decision that helps to protect us. So luckily, I've had my first shot. Hopefully, I'll have my second shot here in the next two weeks. Uh, it's already scheduled, so... Hope y'all are well. Get signed up for your shot. Take care of yourselves. You know, get your exercise, get your sleep, get your rest, get your stress reduction. Uh, talk to some friends somehow. Talk to them on the phone if you got to FaceTime them. Uh, if, you got, if you're a producer, send a rapper a beat. If you're a rapper, send a producer a verse. Um, hope y'all are well. It's a crazy time to be alive in the world, uh, in America especially, because folks don't want to. Oh, man, you see folks in like uh, Miami, Wild Island, spring break, just like, oh, man. That rugged Western individualism doesn't work well when we're trying to have um, <laughs> a mass change of ship of this crazy vessel of America that's running the iceberg over and over, whatever the hell that means. Anyways, uh, take care of yourself. If you go to the grocery store, you know, don't go getting all, all up in people's way. Don't be the asshole that's like not wearing a mask and you think that's some political statement. It's not. Um, I'll leave you with this one. I had a great thing. Uh, there's, a, I guess, a neighbor in my neighborhood who I maybe just, like, somehow we hadn't interacted, I guess, neighborly properly quite. I don't know why that hadn't happened. I guess it hadn't happened. But then this other neighbors moved in who we've had that interaction with. They have kids we have more in common, I guess. And they told us that this other neighbor referred to us as, oh, those are those Black Lives Matters folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't think of a more apt description. I was so kind of proud. I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, yes. And if you think otherwise, that's why we shouldn't talk. And it was funny. I guess the previous neighbor kind of just mentioned that because they had their political views and they were leaving. And I guess they just felt because they were leaving, they could just be extra upfront with them. And I was like, yeah, they don't see it how we see it. No, that's, this is Black Lives Matters folks over there. And I was like, wow. And, you know, if that's your first impression of me, it's pretty accurate, you know. Um, yes, Black Lives Matter. Isn't that an, a revolutionary statement, unfortunately, in our world today? Yes. If a house is burning, it needs to be put out. Yes. If you have a broken leg, that one deserves a cast. Yes. 
Something that has harm deserves to be dealt with. In America, you have not valued black lives in the way that you have been portraying for over 200 years. The whole idea of all men created equal, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, all of the American mythology and bullshit that folks with their libertarian uh, go out west and don't bother me attitude, you know how privileged that is? Come on, man. So if I get known as the Black Lives Matter guy in my neighborhood, I'm okay with that. If that means you don't come say hi, totally okay with that. You know? I'm going to fly up a black flag and a, and a LGBTQ flag and tell y'all to just, you know, not come by with cookies. <laughs> Anyways, um, that's a little rambly rant at the end there. But um, I've realized one of the tricky things is when you're sampling, let's say, a researcher, you have to gather information from folks that you may not agree with, right? If I pretend that folks in America who think that way don't have a voice, I don't have a valid, you know, I guess valid's a weird, weird word because I don't think sometimes somebody has a perspective to stand on when they really, like, break it down, like, critically. But they still have a vote. Like, in America, they're going to vote or type thing. So, and they exist. And so humans have a right to be heard type of deal, right? So if we forget and keep a blind eye to anybody's perspective, we're missing something. So I think that's the key thing with if you're a business, if you're, a, you know, someone out in the sales space, if you're someone in the... Um, industrial space, you have to, or commercial space, you have to find a way to, you know, somehow attract these customers or these, you know, different, um, you know, if you're a rapper or artist, it's a fan base, you know, and maybe you don't even care about certain perspectives and want them to be involved in your fan base. But I think it's helpful to know that these perspectives exist. So I'm not validating in any way this neighbor who thinks that Black Lives Matter is wrong. He's an idiot. But, and I'll take that perspective uh, if that's his perspective. But, he might not be an idiot some other ways, I guess is what I'm saying. And so if I go ahead and other him and, and make him the bad guy because of that perspective, because he don't like my perspective, then next thing I know, I got a neighbor in the neighborhood that I'm not getting along with that's annoying and unnecessarily difficult in my life. So I try to create dialogue with those who I may not agree with sometimes, right? I think that's an important um, human characteristic is to be able to communicate with somebody that you don't necessarily agree with. So hopefully maybe him, me and him will maybe introduce ourselves and not just be like, <laughs> he thinks I'm this way and I think he's that way. But anyways, I'm off course there. But um, yeah, we'll go, we'll talk about more biostatus next time. Um, how you sample, if you introduce bias, how do you represent your population? These are key things that are vital to understanding how numbers work when you're describing um, a population's activity or perspectives or when you want to take your 100 people and make a prediction about 1,000, et cetera. So hope y'all are well. Uh, tune back in next week. We'll have something new for you. Um, who needs a classroom? I guess uh, we all do, right? Y'all be good. Peace.